So we are um, continuing in a series all about the, the common questions that we have about Jesus, Christianity, and the Bible. And um, what I want you to do tonight, and don't hate me for this, but what I want you to do is think back to middle school and just try to remember middle school, which is probably a painful memory for most of you, most of us, and I'll put myself in that category. But I want you to just think about middle school and the worst things about middle school. And I'm just going to put this up here just to kind of jog your memories about middle school, okay? This isn't anyone in particular, but it's just, it's just to help you remember what middle school was like, okay? And it's, you know, every, so I, don't even, I don't even need to give commentary on it. You just remember, right? Okay. So middle school, what, what's horrible about middle school? And if I were to ask you, we were to sit down, and if you can remember back to what it was, or even what this picture conjures up, the worst thing about middle school is not so much bad grades, it's not so much even being lonely if you didn't have friends, it's not so much if you weren't good at school. Probably the worst thing that can happen in middle school is being embarrassed. And that's unfortunate since pretty much all of middle school is embarrassing, but that's, that's basically the worst thing that can happen is that you get embarrassed, publicly embarrassed. Something happens and you get embarrassed. And whatever, whatever that is, what, whatever uh, leads to that, that's, that's the worst thing about middle school is uh, it's just embarrassing. And even when you look back to it, it's embarrassing. And if you, if you have trouble thinking about middle school and what it was like, go to Elitch Gardens and it'll just all come back to you. That's, uh, my wife and I have a season pass there and it's always like, ah, that's what it was like. Um, but here's, here's why I bring that up. Here's why I want you to suffer and remember middle school. It's because a lot of times Christianity can sometimes feel like that. I mean, people have a lot of problems with Christianity. Um, but I think probably one of the biggest problems that people have with Christianity, sometimes even more than that it's exclusive or that, it, um, is, is that uh, you know, it's repressive or all the different types of critiques that people have with Christianity, one of the biggest ones can just be, it's embarrassing. I mean, do, do I really want to say that I'm a Christian? Do I, I mean, is it even uh, intellectually credible to be a Christian or is it just kind of like middle school? It's just, I, I, it's just kind of embarrassing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and yeah, you know, I'm, no one wants to dance with me. That, that kind of thing. Is it, it's just embarrassing. And, and the reason that this is is because a lot of times what people think is that to be a Christian, essentially, or to be a person of faith or a religious person in general, is to kind of just be dumb. That you've got on one side, you've got science, and on the other side, you have religion. You've got reason, and you've got faith. You've got logic, and you've got faith. You've got Christianity, and you, whoops, wrong side. You've got science, and you've got Christianity, that they're, that they're opposed to one another. And so if you say you're a Christian, you're kind of saying, I'm dumb. You kind of put yourself in the dumb camp. Because it's just included with all the other things that are silly to believe. All the other things that aren't necessarily, that's wrong, that's false. It's just, it's kind of dumb. Like, really? You do believe in tooth fairies also? And that, that's kind of one of the things. And so you even, you'll, you'll see slogans, um, and, and I'll just list, you know, show you some of these. This is a bumper sticker. If you've seen the bumper stickers that say coexist, and they, they have the different kind of religion uh, things like this to spell out coexist. This is one that says fiction. Or this bumper sticker says, atheism isn't a religion. It's a personal relationship with reality. Kind of making fun of how Christians say something like that. Um, this says, science, and it's people going to the moon. Religion, it's a plane. 
crashing into the two towers. Um, this is from uh, House, the character, and he says, if you could reason with religious people, there would be no religious people, implying that religious people don't have any reason. This is a t-shirt that says, I think, therefore I am an atheist. This is a, just a little meme that says religion versus science. And at the bottom it says faith does not give you the answers. It just stops you asking the questions. And over here is science with a professor saying, do you have any questions? And over here is a priest of sorts saying, uh, no questions. God did it. God wills it. So the whole, the whole idea is basically, man, it, it, there's, there's science and faith. And are, can they even be compatible? Are, are they compatible? Is reason, is logic, and faith... Is science and Christianity, are those things compatible? Or if, you just, if you're to say, I'm a person of faith, I'm a Christian, have you automatically put yourself in the category that says, I, I really am not thinking about things. I'm really not an intelligent person. I really have to be kind of anti-intellectualism. I have to be anti-science. I've got to be anti-logic and reason. I just believe things. And if you're not a Christian, this can be a problem that, that keeps you from even exploring Christianity because it can be one of the things that you look at and go, man, maybe I have some sort of spiritual interest, but do I, I it feels like I've just kind of got to shut my brain down if I were to become a Christian. I would just kind of have to believe in imaginary things. And is that really, do I really want to put myself in a camp of just imaginary reality? Or do I want to be a person that's a thinking person, a person that's a logical person, a person that looks and investigates truth? And it can be a difficult thing if you're exploring Christianity. Or if you are a Christian, it can likewise be difficult because it can feel like sometimes, man, I've got all these questions and I'm not supposed to ask them. I'm just supposed to push them down. I'm just supposed to silence them. I'm just supposed to live with these kind of underlying level of doubt that, I, that I'm not even supposed to think about, kind of like the, the priest said over in the, the, the left-hand side where he said, no questions, God wills it, God says it, that's just what it is, the end. Don't ask anything. That you can kind of feel like that if you're a Christian or you can kind of feel like maybe, maybe part of your life, depending on what you do in your life, it's filled with thinking and reasoning and science and and using your intellect, and then you kind of have that bifurcated where when you're in your faith world, it kind of feels like, well, I'm not really supposed to think here. I'm just supposed to believe. I'm just supposed to accept. I'm just supposed to just believe in things that I cannot see and just have faith. And it can feel like this tension, this cognitive dissonance where you are supposed to not really think and not really question, and you're just supposed to believe, and yet that, there's a tension there. And so whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it can, it can present difficulty, this, this type of question that, that includes all sorts of different things within it. Are science and faith compatible? Are they, are they incompatible? Are they things that we can hold together or are they diametrically opposed to one another such that never shall the two meet? And so this is the question we're going to look at tonight, and we'll explore kind of the different layers that are included in this. And I'll just tell you up front that this tonight will be a little bit more like, um, maybe more like a, a teaching than a sermon. It will be a sermon, but it'll, it'll be a little bit more like a lecture. And so for those of you that are interested in the topic of science and, and all of that, then you maybe will like this a little bit more. And for those of you that like video, audio to work, and, and more sermon type things, maybe you won't like this as much, but this is what we will look at tonight, okay? Are these opposed to one another? And to begin with, let's ask this question that's a, that's a part of this. Has science explained away 
God. This is sometimes how, um, how, how the question is posed between faith and, and science, between Christianity and science, between reason and faith. Is, has, has science explained away our need for God? And this is really what was kind of said in the video that we missed. This is an atheist thinker, author named Sam Harris. And he says that religion are, religions are basically failed sciences. And this is one of the big things that he talks about, is that religions are basically failed sciences. In the sense that we used to, primitive people, we used to need God. We used to need God to kind of explain uh, community, and we used to need God to deal with our anxiety, and we used to need God to deal with um, our, our needs for purpose, and we used to need God if, uh, if people were sick and we would pray, and we used to need God to explain kind of origins, and we used, we used to need God for things, and that's where religion came in, but, but now that we have science, we don't need God. I mean, science has explained everything that God used to explain. Science has met the needs and filled the needs of everything that religion used to, used to provide. We, we don't need God. So is, has science kind of done away with God? Has science made God useless? And that's sometimes how the question is presented. And, and, and sometimes, not, not always, but sometimes, kind of the way this is talked about, um, people like Mr. Harris would have us believe that Christianity kind of has a mentality that says, you hear the thunder? That's God being angry. Or you see the rain? That's God's tears. And kind of more mythological type things that some religions have done, where they say, you know, the ocean is resting on a snake, or that God sneezed us into existence, or, um, I mean, all sorts of kind of types of things. that they, they, they almost present it in such a way that, see, we, we, don't, need, we don't need to believe in God because science has shown us just how silly all of that stuff is. We know the world's not flat anymore. We know it's round. We know that you know, we, we don't need kind of these silly beliefs that at the end you fall off the edge of the earth or that, that when God cries, there's rain. Or We don't need that kind of stuff. And sometimes they would have you believe that Christianity teaches those types of things. That if you were to read through the Bible, you would see kind of all of these falsifiable things that are just obviously untrue. And that's not really, I mean, that's just not really the case. You, there, there, are, there are some religions that are definitely packed with a more kind of mythological ethos, but, but Christianity is not. So that's just one thing. And um, the second thing is this, that sometimes the way it's talked about is more in line with, if you look at just a human being, if you look at a human being and you look at physiologically, things that we might say are God, they can be explained in the brain. So maybe you say that when you pray, you feel close to God, but that can just be explained. That can be explained when you do brain studies and show that there's certain parts of the brain that if you're meditating or praying, highlight and, and are activated, and it, and, it, and it activates your senses in a way that you kind of feel the warm and fuzzies, or if you're, in a, if you're in a church service and you're worshiping and you're lifting your hands and you feel like, man, I feel God's presence, but really that's oxytocin being released into your brain and you get kind of a, a rush. Or uh, maybe even if you think about it psychologically. Uh, Freud was said that our, our kind of envisioning of God was just a human wish fulfillment for a father figure. 
that we wanted someone that was a, a good father, a present father, someone that was there. And so we could say, well, see, religion is explained away just physiologically. It's explained away psychologically. It's explained away sociologically. The way that religion came into being in the first place was people needed to just make sense of their surroundings and they needed to have groups to cohere together to be able to survive. So you can kind of look at all of these different experiences in life from our brain to our, to our people group to our uh, just feelings internally and say, look, we, we don't really need God. If you just examine it, it's obvious that those things can be explained away. And, and here's the truth. I mean, what science does is science looks at how things work. And so, yes, I mean, a lot of those things are absolutely true. Not all of them, but a lot of those things are true. If you, if you were to observe someone's brain as they're praying, yeah, you would see certain things highlighting. If you were to, um, if you were to just look at history and how religion develops or things like that, yes, you would see that there are sociological phenomena that, that lead to those types of things. But, but here is, here's just the response to that, I guess. That doesn't mean that God's not behind any of that. I mean, just because there's parts of our brain that are triggered in worship or triggered in prayer, or that doesn't mean that God didn't put that into us. It doesn't mean that, I mean, to, for Freud to say psychologically that God is just a projection, well, sure, if, there, if you start with the standpoint that there's no God, but if there is a God, I mean, wouldn't it make sense that our hearts kind of have a longing to, to know that God, to understand that God? I mean, so if you start from a position that there's no God, and so therefore all of these things can be explained... Yeah, they can be. But you could also say, there is a God, and that's why all of these things are built into us. That's why when you look at someone's brain, these different things activate. So there does, I'm, I'm just saying there doesn't have to be a, a tension between those things. That we can still acknowledge what science shows us, because what science does is shows the what and the how of things. Right? That's what it does. It can, it can look at things and tell you what is happening inside your brain. It can tell you how those things are operating. But it doesn't tell you why those things are happening. It, it can try, but, but that really starts to get outside of the realm of science. It starts to get into philosophy. That starts to get into theology. That starts to get into kind of metaphysical reality, which is above the physical reality. So l- let, me, let me give you just kind of an example of this. I mean, if somebody, if somebody is um, harmed by another person, if somebody is killed by another person, science can tell you that it can tell you that if they were to examine our brain during a period of sorrow, that you would see certain areas highlight. They could tell you what happens to that person that dies and how, how it is that their body shuts down and all the different things that begin to to change and shift. I mean, they, they could describe what is happening in an experience of death caused by someone harming another person. But science can't tell you why that's wrong. And science can't get into the, to the realm of morality. Science can describe what, it can describe how, but it can't step back and say, what about a moral question? Is this right? Is it wrong? It can tell you pragmatically, hey, we shouldn't do that for the survivability of the species, but it can't tell you, is there inherent morality in this act? It can describe all the different things, but it can't start to get into the why area. And then similarly, science can tell you what happens during a kiss. 
It can tell you the certain hormones that are happening. It can tell you, this, it can tell you physically that two appendages of lips meet one another. I mean, it can describe what's happening. It can describe why there's a tingling feeling. It can, des- I mean, it can describe all of that. But, it, but can science really tell you what love is? I mean, can science really tell you what beauty is? I mean, I, I don't think it can. And most of us don't think that, right? I mean, it can describe the what and the how of what's taking place, but, but does science really tell us this is what love is? This is what beauty is? I don't think so. So has science explained away God? Maybe, if, I mean, if that's what you choose to believe. But I, I don't think that has to be the case. I think we can still observe things that are taking place in the what and the how, and yet say behind the curtain, why are these things happening? Why do we feel this way? Is there something more? So this is sometimes how the question is posed. Sometimes the way the question is posed is more about Christianity in particular. Is Christianity anti-science? And, and maybe the way that, that this is talked about, um, what I remember growing up is always hearing about Galileo. And how Galileo said the earth revolves around the sun. And the Catholic Church said, no it doesn't, we're going to kill you. And that's kind of how the conversation went in a, in a very short summary. And they say, see, the, the church and Christianity has always been anti-science. That, there's, that there is progress and there's science and then there's kind of religion and fundamentalism that tries to keep that down and say, don't think, don't observe nature, just accept what you have, know it's from God, that's all that matters. So is Christianity anti science is christianity against science that's a that's a that's a valid question because there have been examples when that is the case there have been examples when christians do uh operate in a way that is anti-science so it's it's a valid question but but does that have to be the case is christianity inherently anti-science and let's let's look to begin with at what the bible says here's what jesus says he says Uh, A guy went up to Jesus and asks him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, that's Jesus, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So what we see here is Jesus says, I want you to love me with your mind. I want you to use your mind. In uh, In Romans it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This says that we can know about God if we look at nature, which is essentially, I mean, what science is. You, you observe the physical world and try to learn things. And this says God made it so that his nature and his attributes and his power can be seen if you, and you should, therefore, look at nature and observe nature and get to know nature. In the Psalms, uh, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. So here's what it's saying here is that 
the, the world around us actually shows how awesome God is. That if you look at the sky and you look at the sun and you look at the world, it shows how awesome God is. So the question is, is Christianity anti-science? And while there are definitely Christians that have been anti-science, if you read the Bible, and I just gave you a sampling, it's filled with things that say, look at the world, observe the world, see how it works, try to understand how it works, that, which is essentially science, because it tells us about who God is. It shows us how good God is. Use your mind. Use your understanding. Look at it, because it will show you who God is. This is why, far from being anti-science, Christianity actually led to science as we know it. Christianity led to modern science. It is not anti-science. Christianity led to science that we have today. Here's a quote from someone much smarter than me named Peter Harrison. He was, he's uh, currently a professor at University of uh, Queensville, but was uh, previously professor of science and religion at Oxford. And here's what he said. Could modern science have arisen outside the theological matrix of Western Christendom? It is difficult to say. What can be said for certain is that it did arise in that environment and that theological ideas underpinned some of its central assumptions. Those who argue for the incompatibility of science and religion will draw little comfort from history. What historical record also suggests is that insofar as modern science posits natural laws and presupposes the constancy of nature, it invokes an implicit theology. Here's what he's saying. Modern science, as we know it, did not arise in spite of Christianity. It came because of Christianity. Now, maybe it would have developed in some other context, maybe, but it was actually theological ideas that led to modern science getting created. And here's, here's, some, of, here's some of what he's talking about. Things like, at the end, he says, natural laws. See, there were scientists that said, if God has a moral law, the Ten Commandments, all the, I mean, the things that we looked at before, love God. If God has a moral law where he tells us what to do and what not to do, it would make sense, these scientists figured, that he also has a natural law. See, before, before this period in time, people didn't have, they didn't have an understanding of the natural laws, things that we all learned in high school and college. The laws of thermodynamics and, I mean, all the different laws, right? Laws of gravity. Law, I mean, they didn't have those concepts. That a lot of that got developed because of an understanding of Christianity that said if God has a moral law, he probably has a natural law. There's things like that. If God is a God of order, I bet that creation operates on a set of principles. If God is a God of truth, then I bet there's certain things about nature that can be known and are absolutely true. So Christianity says, this professor from Oxford of scientific history says that it, it actually got developed because of Christianity. If you want to learn more about this and study more about this, I found this really interesting as I was studying this week. I can send you some more stuff on this. But th this is why, far from being anti-science, most of the scientists that you would know, not personally, but that you would know from your old high school classes or even just some of their last names, if you, you know, Newton's this or Kepler's this, and you're like, oh yeah, those names sound familiar from biology class or chemistry class. Most of those scientists were all Christians. And, the, and they... 
and their science, their, their Christianity guided their science. Here's just some of them. This is just a very small selection. Isaac Newton, you probably, I mean, he's probably the most famous. Gravity, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, Louis Pasteur, he's the guy that, you know, is famous for um, his work in all sorts of things, but particularly with immunization and those things. Uh, Johann Kepler, he's famous for a sweet beard and, and chopsticks. Um, <laughs> Francis Bacon invented bacon. Best si- No, not really. Francis Bacon, do you know what Francis Bacon did? He invented what is known as the scientific method. Christian. So science opposed to Christianity, and yet the person that developed the scientific method was a Christian. And here's actually very interesting with Francis Bacon. Some of these, to different degrees, some of them were Christians and they had kind of theological suppositions that led their work. Others, it was strong, strongly because directly of their Christianity that they, in, that they worked towards certain things. Here's, here's another quote by Peter Harrison about Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon and his successors in the Royal Society, for example, clearly saw themselves as attempting to regain the dominion over nature which Adam had forfeited as consequence of his disobedience. Here's how Bacon said it. For man, by the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, for man, by the fall, at the same time from this state of innocency and from his dominion over creation, both of these losses, however, can even in this life be in some part repaired, the former by religion and faith, the latter by arts and sciences. So they're saying because we understand the fall, because we understand sin, we think that we can do something about that spiritually. We need religion, and yet in science, we can, we can start to recover some of what was lost in, in the intended purpose of having dominion over creation. Scientific activity thus came to be regarded as an integral part of a redemptive process. Here's, you can't read this, um, but I'm just going to list, I won't read the whole thing, but this is, this is just a list of scientific disciplines established by Christians antiseptic surgery, bacteriology, calculus. So if you hated calculus, blame the Christians. Celestial mechanics, chemistry, computer, and, uh, computer science, dynamics, electronics, energetics, field theory, fluid mechanics, gas dynamics, genetics, hydraulics, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I won't, I won't go through all of them. But I mean, almost everything, I mean, almost all scientists during this period were Christians, or at least, at the very least, these are Christians, but at the very least, they were God believers. But here, here's, here's the point. Is Christianity anti-science? The point of this is this. It's not to say, look how many smart Christians there are. See, therefore it's right. Because there's a lot of brilliant atheists as well. The point is to say, it's, it's at the very least rude to say Christianity is anti-science. It's at the very least rude to say it's, Christianity is ignorant, and it's childish, and it's pretty much the same as believing in tooth fairies. Because for these men, it wasn't that they were Christians in spite of their science. It was that their Christianity really furthered their science and led to their science. So the, my, my only point with that is this. It's not to say, look how many smart Christians there are, therefore it's true. It's to say we can't be so disrespectful or so, so kind of blind to history to say, Christianity is anti-science. When there's a lot of people that were scientists that would say, it's because of my Christianity that I'm exploring science. Does that make sense? I mean, I think that's just a really important thing to understand. And it's not just those scientists in the past. I mean, we've talked about before uh, during our time together, 
of uh, Francis Collins, who's probably the most noted uh, person who has written about this, who is the head of the Human Genome Project, mapping out all DNA and such. And he is a, a devoted Christian. So, is Christianity anti-science? I do not think so. Perhaps, the next question is this, what about evolution? Because this is kind of the, this is probably one of the big things that people think about when they think about, is Christianity anti-science? Is Christianity uh, how, how does that fit with evolution? Because evolution says we evolved from apes and that all kind of living species e- evolved. And the Bible says that uh, the world, uh, that, that God made Adam and Eve. It seems like from a scientific standpoint that the earth is billions and billions and billions of years old. And it seems like that the Bible says the world was made in six days. Um, so what about evolution? That's a lot of times what people have in their mind when they think about Christianity being anti-science. I know when I uh, was in school, back in middle school, when I was in school, I mean, those were the types of questions that I was asked as a Christian. Well, what about evolution? And, and this is kind of one of the big uh, deal breakers almost, that if, if the Bible is anti-evolution, then throughout the whole thing, because it's anti-science. It's anti-how the world actually works. So what do we do with what do we do with evolution? Because here's you know you've probably seen these you know there's a, a, a the the Jesus uh, one of the symbols for Christians that they use is a fish, um, and this is a fish that has evolved and says Darwin in it. It's kind of saying man if evolution wins Christianity loses. So what about what about evolution? Here's here's the simple short answer. Maybe some of you will like it, maybe some of you won't. Many Christians believe in evolution. Many Christians believe in evolution. When the church wrote their creeds that say, we believe in the virgin birth, and we believe that Jesus lived, and he died, and rose on the third day, and we believe in Father God, and Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's not a line that says, and we deny evolution. You can be a Christian and believe in evolution. For some of you, maybe that's all you need to hear for this entire sermon because it could just be such a deal breaker for you that if evolution and Christian, I mean, that, that would just be silly to pit them against one another. When, I mean, that's, that's just not, it's just not something that is essential to what it means to be a Christian. So for some of you, that's a total deal breaker, and I hope to at least just pop that bubble and say, you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. And, and here's, here is, um, let, me, let me read this to you. It's from the Biologus Institute. And they say, even before Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859, many Christians had already accepted an old earth. And here's why the old earth idea is important. It's because many people say, look, the Bible's incompatible because it says the earth is only sick. These, the, the old earth, young earth, that's related to evolution. That if we have an earth that's only 6,000 years old or 7,000 years old, then it seems like, again, the Bible's anti-science. It doesn't know what it's talking about. Evolution couldn't have happened in that period of time. So back to the quote. The, or even, even before Darwin published The Origin of Species, many Christians had already accepted an old earth, a billions and billions and billions of years old earth. One of the first supporters of evolutionary science in America, Harvard biologist Asa Gray, was a devout Christian. He was a contemporary of Darwin. Conservative theologian B.B. Warfield also accepted the science of evolution. 
And both he and Asa Gray rejected the idea that evolution leads to atheism. Even the authors of the fundamentals, that's where you get the, the word fundamentalist, is there was this big battle between the liberals and the fundamentals, not liberals politically, but liberals theologically. There was a big battle, and the peop, even, the, even the authors of the fundamentals, these were the people that invented fundamentalists, published between 1910 and 1915, accepted in Old Earth, and B.B. And Warfield was one of those authors believed in evolution. It wasn't until a century after Darwin that a large number of evangelicals, so a hundred years later, it was not until a century after Darwin that a large number of evangelicals and fundamentalists began to accept the combination of flood geology, which is to say that the whole world was covered in a flood, and six-day creation promoted by Seventh-day Adventists. The history of this is really interesting if this is a topic, to me it is. Maybe it's not to you at all, and I'm, you're only getting what I'm saying, and that's the end of it. This will be your only history lesson in it. But if you're interested in this, it's actually very, very fascinating. Because here's the point, that when, when evolution came on the scene, historically, many Christians, conservative Christians, fundamentalist Christians, either were ambivalent towards it, eh, whatever, doesn't, I mean, it's not like that leads to atheism, it doesn't really matter, or they accepted it. People that said, I'm, a funda- I'm inventing fundamentalism, and I believe in evolution. To us, to our minds, that seems crazy. Because we think, oh, if you believe that, you, you're either an atheist, a heretic, or I'll shoot you. You're one of those three. But that actually only began to happen much more recently, much, much more recently. When it first came on the scene, it was something that many, many Christians accepted or were just kind of ambivalent towards. Okay, so what do we do about Genesis? Because Genesis seems to say, and I, and I won't read this, but it's in the beginning of your Bible, the easiest place to find. The Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, often this is what people will look at and say, well, doesn't that show that, that it, the world is only six days old versus billions and billions and billions of years before humans came upon it? And the short answer to that is that if you look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's different ways to reconcile those, okay? But the first is this. It's pretty obvious And if you read the Hebrew of it, it's pretty obvious that one is poetry and the other is written more as historical narrative. The one that kind of lists out day and night and day and night and day and night, six days, it's poetry. It's poetry. And this is what people have, I mean, I'm not like inventing this, okay? This is what people have believed and this is not a modern invention to just try to say, oh no, what do we do? Science says this. This is something that people have believed for a long, long time. It's not in spite of the Bible, it's because of the Bible. It's you open the Bible and look at it and what it actually says. So, is the, did God make the world in six days? Maybe, okay? There's different ways to reconcile this. But, what it seems like is that he made it in a lot longer time than that. And that between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, one is poetry and one is history. Um, another way to reconcile this, and I'm just kind of giving you a couple options because I just want you to understand, you don't have to say, either I accept that the world is 6,000 years old and the evolution doesn't exist, either I accept that, I, I have to believe that if I'm a Christian. I don't want you to have to think that because it's just not true. You can think that, I'm not telling you you can't think that, but you, you shouldn't think, I've got to believe that to be a Christian. 
Because there's plenty of Christians that do not believe that because of what the Bible says. And not just modern Christians, but, but Christians along Christians that invented fundamentalism. Okay? Uh, let, me, let me just give you a couple other things. Um, well, if, uh, if, if, God, if the world is billions of years old, and Genesis says it's six days old, maybe it's poetry, that's one example, but one um, Old Testament scholar says what he thinks is that the world is billions and billions of years old, but the Garden of Eden was made in six days. And this is, uh, he's an Old Testament scholar, and the Old Testament is filled with, I mean, one of the major ideas of the Old Testament is God preparing a people and preparing a land for that people. That that's a big theme in the Old Testament, that God takes a people, he forms a people, and he forms a land for that people. And that Genesis is opening up, talking about that's what God did. Yes, the world is billions of years old, and then God takes some people, and he forms a land for those people called the Garden of Eden. What about Adam? I'll give you a couple ideas on Adam. One idea with Adam is the same thing, that there was all sorts of uh, Lucy's and all sorts of those, you know, Neanderthal people walking around that had evolved from chimpanzees, etc. And God grabbed some of those, put them into the garden, breathed the breath of life into them, and that was Adam and Eve. Is that possible? I think it's possible. I mean, the, the text would not discount that that's a possibility. The Bible wouldn't discount that that's a possibility. So the, the big idea is this. You don't have to believe in evolution, okay? If, if you believe the world is five days old, that's fine. If you believe the world is 6,000 years old or 7,000 years old, or you believe there's zero such thing as evolution, you can believe that because that's okay. And I think there are smart Christians that would advocate that. But there's also a historical tradition, and there's also many intelligent Christians that not, not in acquiescence to the culture, but because of their study of the Bible, would say, I believe in the absolute, inerrant word of God, that it's 100% true, it's his word, and I believe in evolution, and I believe the world is billions and billions of years old. There's people that say that. That's just what you need to know. And if you're a Christian and you have conversations with people that are kind of saying, I could never be a Christian because I believe in evolution— you, you probably shouldn't start by saying, well, actually, the, the, here's all the reasons evolution is false. You should probably just start with saying, you know what, there's a lot of Christians that believe that. And if you want, you can share your position and say why you believe that's not true, but you could probably just start with saying, yeah, you know what, there's a lot of people that believe that. A lot of Christians have believed that for a long time. And it, and it can fit with the Bible. It can fit with the Bible being absolutely true. That doesn't have to mean, by the way, that evolution is therefore a theory of everything that explains all of life. Everything that we think is because of evolution, everything we feel is because of evolution, everything we do is because of evolution. We can believe in evolution from a biological standpoint and not have to believe in it from a philosophical standpoint that interprets all of life. So you only, kind of some of the things I mentioned earlier, you believe in religion because it helped us survive. I mean, you, you don't have to believe in it to it for all of life as an encompassing theory you can believe, hey, this is something that God used. Let, let me just say this too, last thing on this point. No Christian that I know believes that God just kind of drops babies off on people's doors, right? 
or doorsteps, I mean, not, I mean, maybe on the door itself, like a wreath, but no, no one believes that, that God just kind of drops a baby off, right? We believe that God uses processes. We believe that there's two cells that come together and that they form an egg and then a sack, and then, I mean, that all of these things start to develop. We believe that God uses a process to develop life. I mean, all, all Christians believe that, right? We don't, we don't believe it. Well, no, 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 no. That would get rid of my Christianity. God only must just drop babies, you know, from the sky, and that's how life comes. So again, it's okay if you're a Christian, and maybe this is a huge relief for some of you that have experienced some internal war. It's okay if you believe that God used evolution to create the world, to create life, and that he still breathed his breath of, of life into a real Adam and a real Eve and all of that. Okay, last thing. Um, is faith opposed to thinking? Because sometimes it's not about science. It's not about um, science explaining away God. It's just kind of in general, faith is opposed to reason. Faith is opposed to using our minds. That on the one side, you have kind of blind faith. Just believe, just trust. If you were to Google image faith, I mean, the most common image that would show up would be a blind person with like a blindfold walking or doing, you know, doing something that's a blind leap of faith. And faith is kind of seen as this thing that you just accept. Don't ask questions. Don't think about it. Just believe. Just have faith. Blind faith. And then there's reason, which is not think about things. Ask questions. Investigate. Explore. So is, is faith opposed to thinking? Is Christianity opposed to asking questions? Is it opposed to investigation? Is it opposed to evidence? Is it opposed to looking into things and using our minds? Because a lot of people say, no, those cannot exist together. The church has always, kind of what we saw in one of those pictures, the church has always said, shut up, don't ask questions, just believe, just have faith. And even in your life, when things are happening in your life, many, many, I mean, this is not just something that people that are not Christians say, this is something Christians say to one another. That we say, just have faith, just believe. No reasons, no questions, just believe. Is that, is that true? Is, is that true? And to look at that, we'll look at a story of a man named Thomas. And if you've been around the church for any period of time, you've probably heard of Thomas. He's known as Doubting Thomas, which I think is unfortunate, because this is one instance in his life, and forever now he's known as Doubting Thomas. And no one would want that to happen to them, right? Like, oh, look, it's Liar Larry. And like, I told one lie, please, you know? Like, I don't think in heaven his name tag says Doubting Thomas, just so you know. His name was Thomas. He actually had another nickname. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. That was his real nickname until people messed it up and said, ah, Doubting Twin. Okay, so that's just a side note. Don't call him Doubting Thomas when you get to heaven and you meet him. I, I think he's probably a little sensitive about that. So now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after Jesus died and then resurrected. And he had appeared to some of his disciples, but Thomas wasn't with them because he was probably off somewhere doubting, okay? So he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, which just seems a little creepy, by the way. <laughs> I, I, unless I see that, I will never believe. So Jesus was crucified and he had a spear stuck in his side. And Thomas says, unless I see that, unless I can 
get in there and touch, you know, his creepy Thomas, doubting Thomas. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, this is what we'll close with. And let me tell you a few things that we see from this text. The first is this. Doubting is not new. Okay. Sometimes we can have this, what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery which is we think, oh, in our day, in our age, we're so intelligent, we're so smart, and we kind of, we invented doubt. Before that, everybody just accepted everything that was told to them. And and the first thing is this, I mean, people have always doubted. We are more alike than different. We are more alike than different from our human ancestors. People have always doubted, people, I mean, different doubts, different questions, but people have always doubted, always had questions, always wanted to say, show me the evidence, show me the proof. People have always thought like that. That's a human thing. That's not a modern thing. It's not an American thing. Second thing is this. Jesus, I mean, when Thomas says that, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't say, how dare you doubt me? Get your fingers away from my scars. Jesus actually invites it. I mean, when Jesus shows up to him, he goes to Thomas and says, Put your fingers here. Let me see your hand. Touch this. Jesus invites it. And, and, and here's what we see then. God wants us to have reasons for what we believe. God wants us to have reasons for what we believe. He wants us to. He wants us, whether you, so look, if you're not a Christian, I am never going to be the pastor that says, just believe it, God said it. I'm going to say, you should not be a Christian unless you have reasons for believing who God is. So ask them and investigate and explore. And if you're a Christian, the same is true. And the Bible's filled, the Bible is filled with this getting fleshed out, not in story form, but in teaching form. Where, where it says, Paul persuades people and gives reasons to people and says, I want you to believe. Here's reasons. And that's why many of the, the, the New Testament with Paul and John and Peter, they say things like, we are eyewitnesses. We saw this. And that becomes a really important part, and we'll talk about this later, of why they appeal to people to believe. They say, look, we have 500 witnesses. Go talk to them. Hey, I saw it. I touched it. I was there. I I heard it myself. So believe because of eyewitness. They don't ever just say, just believe. That's never something that the Bible says. The Bible is not the proponent of blind faith. The Bible is a proponent of faith because of reasons. Faith because of reasons. Put your fingers here. See my hand. I mean, Jesus is not being a jerk to him right here. He's saying, man, I, I know, I, man, I know that's hard. Come over here. Let me show you. The questions you have are good questions. Come over here and let me show you. So that's the first thing. God wants us to have reasons for why we believe what we believe. 
And if you believe, um, and I know many people are not atheists, many people just have kind of a generic belief in God. So they, they believe there's something out there, they believe there's a God out there, they believe he's a God of love, and they, they're not atheists, they believe kind of just in a generic God. This is what most people in the world, most people in our country believe. They're not atheists, they're people that believe some sort of God. But let me just say this, and I always kind of like to point out why the Christian God is different from that. If you believe just in a generic God of love, that God is is the God that says, just faith, no reasons. Because the whole of Christianity's point is, God hasn't done that. That God has said, I've come down to show you who I am. I want you to have reasons. I want you to have belief. If you believe just kind of in this generic God, what has he done to show you who he is? This is often what atheists will say. Atheists will say, look, if God existed, wouldn't he just show up and make us believe? Well, you're right, he would. And that's what he did in Jesus. But if you believe just in a generic God of love that's out there, he has actually just told you, just believe. Yeah, you can maybe sense him or feel him in nature or something, but that's all he's given to you. He hasn't done anything more. In Christianity, we see that God says, no, I want you to have reasons for why you believe. I don't want blind faith. I want real faith. I don't want, I want, blind faith is just the dumbest thing ever. I mean, that just, and, and that's why atheists always rail against it. And that's why God is against it and says, see my hands, place it in my side. Second thing we see from this is this. God wants us to know the truth, not just so we know facts, See, science, the, the whole process of science is that we, we try to explore and discover truth. Why? I mean, what, what's the whole point? Ideally, the point is that you try to find out what is true. How, what is reality actually like? That way it leads to some sort of positive change. Whether that's there's viruses and vaccines or there's, you start to understand more how atoms work and electrons work and it, it leads you to better technology, the internet, audio on videos. I mean, we, we wanted to know why does something work so that it can lead to something better. That, that's what the exploration of science is about, ideally. Well, the same is true spiritually. God doesn't want us just to know truth and know facts. He doesn't just say, hey, look, see, proved it. I'm right. Got the scars. What he wants is that there's an exploration of truth. There's a discovery of truth that leads to seeing ultimate reality of what it really is, and then that leading to change. See, for Thomas, it ended in this. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. God doesn't want us just to know truth just so we have facts. He wants us to know truth because he wants us to know himself. And this is, this is what's really good news, is that God says, I want you to know me. So yeah, look at my world and look at nature and explore it and investigate it and understand it because it'll tell you more about who I am. And, and the same is true with the Bible that sometimes people are like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really into theology or I'm not really into, I just kind of have my faith and I just feel God and I don't need to learn. And God says, no, I want you to know who I actually am. I want you to actually know me because when you really know him, that's what leads to your life changing. The truth is not just supposed to be for intellectual knowledge. It's supposed to be for worship. 
where it leads to my Lord and my God. And you see how personal that is for Thomas. My Lord, my God. So here's, here's what I'll say. If you're not a Christian, keep asking your questions. Keep investigating. Keep exploring. God wants you to because he wants you to really know him. He doesn't want you to just say you know him or have some false version of him. He wants you to know him. So he wants you to ask all the questions. And if you're a Christian, the same thing. He wants you to know him. So don't stop seeking to know him. Don't just say, well, I just kind of feel him or I just accept things. He wants you to know who he is and have that shape your life. And when we take communion, we remember how much it is that he wants us to know him. That he was willing to come to this earth. He was willing for us not to just, you know, what God did not do was just drop this book. Say, here you go. He dropped himself. He, truth became a person and said, I want you to know me. And yet there is such a barrier between us because of the resistance in our heart that in order for you to know me, I've got to remove the sin that stands between us, which is those things in our heart that say, I don't need you and I don't need to know you and I can live my life as my own God, as my own governing authority, as my own master. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to die for our sin. Our sin of revolving around ourselves, of building, of seeking truth for ourselves rather than to know God. And so that's what we remember. Jesus shed his blood and he had his body broken because he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. If you're a Christian, I want you to just think about that when you take communion. The lengths that God went to that you would know him. And if you're not a Christian, as we sing songs and as we take communion, I want you to just observe and see what if, what if there's a God out there that wants to know me like that? What if that's true? Keep asking. Keep exploring. And we have offering baskets up in the front. And if you're not a Christian, please uh, don't give. But if you are a Christian, we give because we believe that God wants many, many people to know him. And that's why we exist as a church. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you have gone to great lengths for us to know you and that you have um, not just spoken truth to us, but that you have come to us as ultimate truth. God, thank you that when we look at this world, we can see your beauty. When we look at this world, we can see your character. We can see your attributes, as Paul said in Romans. We can, we can see who you are as we look around in nature and as we use questions and reasoning and science, we can get to know even more of who you are. But that ultimately we come to know you, God, in Jesus. And you want us to know you as who you really are. And I pray, Lord, for every person in this room that they would come to know you as who you really are. They would not be afraid of questions. They would not be afraid of using their minds, but that they would seek to know you and love you for who you really, truly are. Let us all do that. Let us worship you, as you said, Jesus, in spirit and in truth. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.